Good morning. So I have some bad news for you. There's a small misprint in the bulletin. We're not doing verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. We're doing 1 through 18. You got it right on the back. Okay, good. I just didn't want, you know, I knew it was going to be a shock to some of your systems. You had you'd mentally prepared yourself for just eight verses, but we're going all the way to 18 this morning. So let's start with Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard, for their many words do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for lifting us up out of our trespasses and our sins and setting us at the table of your blessed family. Thank you for doing all this for us so that we will know you, experience your love for us, and bring glory to your name. We ask now, Father, that as we walk through these verses about how to practice our faith, that you would continually 
Bless us with your presence. Fill us with your spirit. And guide us into the ways that we are to walk. So that we would reflect your name and your glory the way that you want it reflected to others and those around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've looked in the bulletin, you see I've called this showy religion. And I picked that name intentionally. And I mentioned it last week when I was doing the transfiguration, if you remember, that this stark contrast between the true awe-inspiring glory of Jesus that is transfiguration on top of the mountain versus this passage we're looking at today in the man-made tinsel town showy religion of the Pharisees. You know, it's a fair question of why would I try to cover 18 verses of this chapter 6 in just a single sermon? Well, I think that they're really, even though they're three separate subjects, they're really three separate examples of the same central point that Jesus is trying to make here. And that's the idea of this showy religion. And don't, you know, don't do this. Don't do it like these guys are doing it. And my justification for that is this three times repeated phrase, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 4, verse 8, and verse 18. Because he repeats that same phrase those three times, it ties all these passages, all these verses, and these three separate passages together as one subject with three separate examples. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's intentionally teaching his followers, don't act like the Pharisees. Don't be one of those. Don't be that guy. Right? If Jesus was preaching this sermon today, maybe on top of Castle Rock, he would say something like, don't be that guy. Right? Don't be that guy. And so when we start looking at these passages, we start dealing with the subject of giving to the needy is the first one he addresses. And we know that the Mosaic law instructed Israelites to help out those in need. Okay, good. Got that. Everybody, have you ever noticed how that's almost a universally, generally accepted principle? Among various, not just among different religions, but among various cultures that have no, what we would call religious system necessarily. There's always seems to be present this idea among all cultures of helping those who are in need. Now, how, what kind of help that looks is, what it looks like, what is acceptable help, what is not acceptable help, all that varies from culture to culture. But yet, it's almost instinctively written upon the hearts of humans by our Creator to assist those around us who are in need. And the Mosaic Law was no different. It gave very specific instructions about helping the needy and specific ways to help and not to help. The problem was not that the Pharisees and the majority of the Jews in Jesus' day were not doing it. They actually were. The problem was that the religious leaders had turned it into this self-exalting exercise to boast and build themselves up. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? This is not what. Do we have to have this conversation again? And. The answer is yes, he does. He has to have this conversation again. And this time, because listen, the, the only example that the people had before Jesus steps onto this mountaintop were the Pharisees. 
That were the only ones they knew about how to do things the way the Mosaic law told them to do it. I think it's one of the reasons Jesus was so frustrated with the Pharisees. He knew they were the only example the people had to follow. And they messed it up so bad. For the like, it's oh, it's one thing to mess things up with good intentions, right? We all have a measure of sympathy when someone does the wrong thing with good intentions. But it's really hard to have sympathy for the person who does the wrong thing with bad intentions, and that's what the Pharisees were doing here. In these all these three passages, he's intentionally hammering away at their absolutely wrong practices for the wrong reason. It was all about bringing glory to the Pharisee, exalting themselves, everything they did, not doing it out of obedience to God for the glory of God. And so this boasting self-exaltation, building themselves up is the one that Jesus goes right after. And he tells just as plainly as can be, don't draw attention to your giving to the needy. Now, I think a fair question then becomes, well, does that mean that we should never draw attention or ever do anything to draw attention to the person who's been generously, sacrificially giving? No, I don't. That's not true at all. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't ever. But what he's saying is, is don't do it so that people will tell you how great you are. And don't do it in such a way that people feel obligated to tell you how great you are. In fact, I think that in the majority of the situation, the anonymous donations are often the first choice of the believer. Don't, it's okay. I don't need people to know that I did this. A good thing, right? I'm really okay with people not knowing I did a bad thing. But it's okay for them not to know that I did a good thing. There's nothing wrong with being recognized for the gifts that that we give to others that are given to others. Like, for example, we've all seen uh, city programs or maybe a college program where they were trying to raise money for a building or a project and they would write the names of the persons that gave money onto a brick and put it into a brick walkway or part of the brick wall. Those are fine. There's nothing wrong with those people being recognized for the gift they've given. Especially when you are one of many. The problem seems to be when individuals are singled out and lauded to others. And we just, in God's economy, we just, we shouldn't be seeking that for ourselves. And if others feel like they want to do that for us, that's really an awkward place to be. But we should just be, thank you very much. And don't make it a point of emphasis on us. That's all I got to say about that. And then when it comes to the subject of praying, one of the best illustrations of what Jesus is trying to get across here is from the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. So let's turn there for a moment. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also, Jesus, told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I can get. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now you can fairly ask the question, okay, I kind of see the connection between Jesus' teaching here about humbleness and humility and prayer with this tax collector and Pharisee parable, but I'm not exactly sure what, how, I mean, What's that got to do with showiness and flashiness? Well, it comes back to this central part of, of what Jesus said at the end of that parable. If you don't humble yourself, you're exalting yourself. It's almost like there's no neutral ground. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it's like there's never a neutral spot. You either are humbling yourself or you're exalting yourself. And while we talk about there's a right middle ground, of accepting humility and being humble while accepting the thankfulness of other people for something they've done for you. There's, it just seems to be you're either humbling yourself or exalting yourself. And, and there seems to be a more egregiousness to the arrogance of exalting yourself in front of God. Right? I mean, what is the purpose of prayer? Why do we pray? What's the purpose of prayer? Just a simple question, right? What's the purpose of prayer? Does that feel hard for you to answer in this moment? Right? I mean, the, at its core, at its base, the most boiled down, simplest, one-sentence definition, prayer is talking to God. Okay, great. Prayer is talking to God. So who are we talking to if we're praying in a boastful, self-exalting way? Yeah, I'm not talking to God. I'm talking to the people around me. I'm just using God as an excuse to tell them how great I am, which is what the Pharisee did in this parable with the tax collector and the Pharisee. Oh, okay. But really, we don't do that. None of us are so foolish as to actually pray in a self-exalting way. Okay, let's talk about empty phrases. Here in this passage, Jesus says it right there in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Okay, so it's good not to act like a Gentile. Well, but we are Gentiles. I don't think there's anybody in the room that's Jewish. So we're all Gentiles. All right, so let's don't act like us. Yeah, some of you got that, right? Was, that was supposed to be a funny moment. A couple of you picked it up. Don't act like us. Empty phrases, this excessive, an empty phrase. When these Gentiles we talked about, especially was in the uh, mythical Roman and Greek mythologies, these ideas of just 
you know, speaking to the gods in these excessive phrases with the idea that you could actually change their mind. And he's saying, don't do that here. Don't go talking to God using all this excessive speaking, these excessively large, long phrases, speaking in a way like you're arguing a case before a, a judge or a lawyer trying to change God's mind and show him. by sh- but It's not that you're trying to change God's mind. That's not wrong. The part that's wrong is trying to change God's mind by showing him how smart you are. That's where this goes sideways. Right? Don't be that guy. Don't be the one who thinks he's so smart he needs to show God how smart he is. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18. That's First and Second Samuel, then you get to 1 Kings. In the Old Testament. This is where Elijah is having his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Starting in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud. And they cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Okay, here's an example of how excessive phrases, as Jesus talked about it in this this chapter 6 of Matthew, are not accomplishing anything. Here these prophets of Baal are out there dancing around, carrying on, doing everything they can do to try and change Baal's mind to answer them. But he doesn't answer because he doesn't exist. He doesn't answer because he's a false god. And the only power behind Baal is the power of Satan. And Elijah is going to show the people, actually God's going to show the people through Elijah, that there is just one God. And then contrast that with the end of that passage. We won't read it. Elijah basically says one or two words and then runs to get out of the way. Because there's a big ball of fire falling. The prophets of Baal used excessive phrases and got nowhere. Elijah speaks to the one true and living God in humility with just a couple of words. And a meteorite falls from heaven and lands right on the spot where that altar is. So yeah, empty phrases aren't going to get you anywhere. Well... Jesus says to pray in secret here, but I've already done violated that command twice. I stood up and prayed in front of all you guys to start this service. I stood up and prayed in front of all y'all to start this sermon. And I'm going to stand here and pray in front of all y'all to end this sermon. So I'm a three-time violator. I'm a, if there was a three-strike law, I'd be dead before I get off of this platform. So what do you do with that? 
Jesus says pray in secret, but we ain't praying in secret. I ain't praying in secret. Every now and then I ask some of you not to pray in secret, but to pray in front of everybody else. What do we do with that? Well, the thing to recognize is Jesus isn't giving a universal command here against public prayer. What he is saying is don't make it one of your showy places to exalt yourself. But public prayer is necessary. Public prayer is good. Praying together in a group where you're hearing somebody else pray and then you pray, those are good things. Praying here together where I'm praying at the beginning of the service and during the beginning of the sermon, at the end of the sermon, together is a good thing. But it gets turned into a bad thing for the purpose of self-exaltation and exalting ourselves. You're like, how does that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happens. Someone decides that they're going to volunteer to pray for the group so that they can give a second sermon to round off all the pieces that the preacher didn't finish, didn't give that they thought was important to give. Or you decide to volunteer so that you can display your breadth and depth of the English language in the expanse of your vocabulary. That man goes home unjustified before God or woman. Now, prayer to God, public prayer, praying in front of others with a group has a, two very distinct purposes. The first one is we understand that we're, when we're praying in public, we are still talking to God. I am. Look, when I'm praying, I'm not talking to y'all. Believe it or not, I'm really not. I know some of you sometimes feel like my prayers are about you, but they're not. It just so happens that that's where you are in life. And the Holy Spirit was convicting you. It had nothing to do with me. I am talking to our Father when we pray together. I am not talking to you. But you happen to be listening in on my conversation with our Father. On purpose. Public prayer is us talking to God the Father together, even though you're just listening in on what I am saying, so that we can join in together in agreement for these things. When I pray at the beginning of the service, I'm asking for things that I am, am, am convinced that we can all agree in and hoping that he would do for all of us. That should be a primary construct of our public prayers. The other part of it is to bless those around us. When we pray for, in a public setting in front of others, in a group, praying that they would be in agreement, praying in a way that they can be in agreement with us and join in with us in agreement on these things we're asking God to do and saying to him, those should be blessings even when we're praying for hard things, like, Lord, show us where we're wrong. That's still a blessing, even though it's a hard thing. Here's another example, right? I mean, if you've been in church a long time or you've grown up in church, especially, you know exactly what I'm talking about in this next point. Don't change your language to sound like someone different. Right? Don't say these and thou's if that's not a part of your everyday speaking pattern. 
But yet, if you've grown up in church, you know individuals that would be called upon to pray in a church meeting, and they never said thee and thou, except when they were praying. Look, I'm, I'm obviously I'm saying if you have a certain proclivity to use words that are not edifying in your everyday speech. Obviously, I'm saying don't use those in your prayer. But you should sound like the same person talking on the phone to somebody as you do talking to the Father. Yes, there's a level of reverence, a level of respect that needs to be adhered to. But for the most part, if I happen to walk up while you're praying to the Father out loud, I might as well think you're just talking on the phone to somebody. They're the same types of speech that you use in your daily language. So then we come to this whole thing about the Lord's Prayer. And he gives us this example, this model prayer to go with. And like, okay, all right, fine. And, and, but look at how simplistic it is. It's the very opposite of what the Pharisees did whenever they were praying. And so when we look at the Lord's prayer, the first thing we have to come to terms with and recognize is that he's not giving a formula for prayer. If you're using a formula, you're making it into empty phrases. The purpose was to show just how simple our prayers should be. I mean, in one sense, for a rabbi of Jesus' stature to teach his disciples to pray such a simplistic prayer was a scandal. Are you kidding me? How, you've got to be kidding me. That, that goofball from Galilee taught his disciples to pray such a simple prayer? How embarrassing. No, that's, but that's exactly what they should be. It's just, just simple prayers. We, we don't need to try to convince God of what we're asking. I mean, we know, he knows, before we even start talking. I mean, here's the crazy part. He knows what we really need before we even start asking it. He knew what we really needed before we ever figured out what we needed. And he knows what we're going to get no matter how we ask him. If he knows all this, why are we bothering to ask him? I mean, really, seriously, I'm a, I'm a pretty simple, low-energy person. What's the minimum amount of effort I have to put out to accomplish this task? God already knows what I need. He's already decided what he's going to give me. So why am I going to bother to ask? Because in the process of asking, we learn the humility of asking the sovereign of the universe for something that we can't make happen on our own. We practice the humility of acknowledging him as the sovereign and not us. And by coming to him and us asking him for these things, we're increasing our relationship with him. Right? I mean, if, if I don't, I can play this game of, I don't talk to him because he knows what I need. But that's just what it is. It's a game. I'm not avoiding prayer because I'm being very efficient with my time and energy. I'm avoiding prayer because I don't want to talk to him. 
I don't want to deal with him. I don't want to have nothing to do with him. Not really. I mean, I kind of do, but not really. Just do me the good, just do the good things I like and do the things I need. And just, you know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we just won't interfere with each other. That's what's really happening when I don't want to talk to God. I just don't want to talk to him for whatever reason. I've messed up. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I don't like the idea that I'm not in charge. Whatever. Whatever the reason, I just don't want to talk to him. But that's the times that we need to talk to him. That's the the ironic contradiction of heaven. That when we need to talk to him the most is the times that we don't want to talk to him. I don't know about you guys, but I never get over this one. Like every, I guess I shouldn't say every time, but. Well, yeah, every time I don't want to talk to him, that's the time I really need to. Just like every time I don't want to come to church is the day that I really need to come to church. I know that seems weird to you because I have to be here, but there are days I really just don't want to come. And it usually has nothing to do with you because I messed up and now I don't want to stand here in front of you like a hypocrite. I'd rather just be at home and be a hypocrite by myself. So if you have that problem, you don't get to stay home either. You still got to come here and be a hypocrite in front of everybody just like me. I don't want to do this by myself. Now what we should do is we need to plead with him from the anguish of our hearts when it is an intense and emotional distressingly subject. But don't drift into arguing your case like to a lawyer before a jury. That's the danger. Is we just... We drift from this moment of the things that are really intensely happening in our hearts and souls and, and pleading our cause and our case before him in the most intense of our emotions. Then we start to drift into this idea that we can somehow change his mind if we say the right words or we use the right logical argument. No, 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 no. We'll say, well, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is we end up, is the reason behind our trying to argue our case before the judge of heaven. We somehow think we're smart enough to do that. That we somehow know something he doesn't know, or that we have a thought and perspective that he doesn't already understand. It's a practice of self-exaltation. Humility says, Lord, I, this is how I really feel. Help me. That's a humble prayer. Then we come to the subject of fasting. Now, I know fasting is not a common practice among us in the more modern church, especially among Baptists. In fact, if you're a Baptist, you were probably taught that fasting is a mortal sin, especially on Sunday at 12 o'clock. Yeah, some of you caught that, understood that joke too. But fasting was a common practice for the Jews in the ancient days and in many other aspects, in many other cultures in the world, not just among Christianity, but also among Christianity, fasting is a common practice. Of course, we often hear about it during Ramadan with the Muslims and their fast. 
And for those of us who don't ever really practice fasting and don't quite understand it, it's a fair question. So what is the purpose of fasting? Well, the purpose of fasting is to enhance our fellowship with God. Wait a minute. You mean you fast to enhance your fellowship with God? Yes. But the Pharisees would go around with disfigured, gloomy looks on their faces, doing everything they could to make sure you knew they were fasting. Well, how does that accomplish the purpose of enhancing your fellowship with God? It don't. It don't. And that's the reason Jesus was hammering on them about this. Because they were interested in what people said about them. They were more interested in enhancing their fellowship with the people around them than they were with enhancing their fellowship with God. So we began to understand this idea that fasting is for the purpose of enhancing our fellowship with the Father. Now we understand why the showy spectacle of fasting was all the more incredulous and hypocritical by the Pharisees. They can't be that interested in fellowship with God if they want people to see them and give them praise for fasting. So all of this can easily be summed up and measured with one question. Right? Right? We, the idea here is this is how we practice our faith in Christianity. And Jesus is giving us these three different examples of giving to the needy, praying, and fasting to understand how we practice in a humble, non, non-self-exalting manner. How can we, do, you know, so, right, we're all, we all kind of want rules to follow in a way. Not in a way, we do. And in a way, this is kind of a way to practice this. Just a simple one question. One question. If you get nothing else from what I've said today, I just want you to come away with, I just want you to take this one question home with you and stick it in your pocket every day this week. Use it. Who are you doing this for? Who are you doing this for? When it's time to give to the needy, who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for them, for yourself, or for Jesus? And the answer to that question will show you a lot about where your heart is. It's one of those heart examining questions. Who are you doing this for? Well, I'm doing this so I'll feel better about myself. Okay, let's talk about that for a moment. Why do you need to feel better about yourself today? Well, I'm doing this for them. So you want them to know you did this so they will be appreciative of what you did for them? You want their praise? You want their, you want their patting you on the back and telling you what a good person you are? Why do you need that today? Who are you doing this for? I'm doing this for Jesus. Okay, then. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, who are we doing this for? The only answer that works is the one that guides us in how we are to practice our faith is we do this to enhance our fellowship with God and act in obedience to what he's calling us to do. I'm giving to the knee because the spirit impressed upon me with conviction that I need to make a sacrificial gift to the needs of this, these people, this person, this individual, this group, whatever, so that 
I will be obedient to what he's calling me to do. I don't completely understand the reason why he wants me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm not going to make a big show of it. Well, okay, that's all fine and good. Maybe that's even a great way for us to practice our walk in the faith. Walk to work out our Christianity by asking this question of who are we doing it for? And that's more practical, I guess, more useful on a daily basis. But every day is not the same, is it? This morning was a different morning for me. This morning, the, the atrocity of showy religion came in a very poignant and assaulting way. What good is your showy religion? What is it you're actually willing to say out loud at the foot of a young mother's grave? Looking into the eyes of her middle-aged husband and her three small children as you stand over her grave. Well, God wants your best life now is not going to cut it at the gravesite. Showing off your great expanse of the English language and vocabulary, mm, you might not have a very well-received reception pulling that junk at the foot of the grave. That's when we understand the difference. That's when we understand the stuff that really, really, really works That's not a showy, flashy religion. What are you going to say in those moments? Those are the real, true words of God. Lord, I do not understand why cancer took this young mother. But Father, we trust you even in the midst of this. That, that is the truth. That is humbling ourselves in the most devastating of moments for those around us. And and I, I, I pray that those are the only words that ever come out of my mouth are the ones that are truly His words in the most awful moments of life. And there's no showiness and flash in that. There's no tinsel, and Hollywood will never make a movie about that. But heaven will sing in those words. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your loving us, even in the most difficult of times and places when nothing seems to make any sense. Thank you that you show us What true faith in the sovereign God of the heaven and earth who died, who took on human flesh and died so that we could be freed from the bondage of sin and the curse of death. Thank you that you love us enough to show us 
what it is to be a humble disciple of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would always be tender and gentle towards your truth and to humbling ourselves before you. And we pray this because it's so easy to fall into the trap of exalting ourselves. It's so easy for me to fall into the trap of exalting myself. Thank you for loving us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.